from from afar. Ransom here here to see us. And then we've got some more from east east of Dallas. I thought I saw it come in here. But anyway, we'll have a have a good time today. Um, we're continuing our, our study of uh, uh, Timothy Keller, Keller's uh, book called Forgive. Um, I, I think that you're going to find this, this series incredible. I haven't quite finished the book, but uh, um, it, it's got a lot of good things ahead of us. Just to remind you kind of where we are, this is the table of contents of the of the book, I won't go through all of this, but just look, today we're on the book of forgiveness, really looking at what the scriptures have to say about forgiveness and the thread throughout scripture, but you know, you, you look ahead, a God of love and fury, uh, you know, our need for forgiveness, uh, receiving God's forgiveness into the real nitty-gritty of life, granting our forgiveness and extending forgiveness, it's, we've got a, a good good path ahead for us, so I think you should look forward to that. Just a little review from the last couple of weeks. Um, I think Blake went over this, the models of forgiveness um, that he's talking about in the, in the culture that we, we live in, the way people look at forgiveness. Uh, one he entitled Cheap Grace, and that has an emphasis on uh, the therapeutic uh, of, of the uh, person giving forgiveness. So uh, therapeutically liberated uh, from anger, but it doesn't really, really get there. And then another one he called Little Grace. It has the emphasis is on the perpetrator meriting forgiveness. Uh, then another one, No Grace, where it's really on the perpetrator, but just pursuing justice, and that's the, that's the end result. So th- those are some ways to look at it, and then one we call Costly Grace, which is the uh, what's assumed in, in scriptures. So there are different ways to look at forgiveness in our culture. Uh, another <clears throat> part that Blake went over last week's is the history of forgiveness. Uh, there's, there was absence of the notion of forgiveness in the ancient Greek world, which we get a lot of our philosophies from that. Um, their virtues, as, as, as uh, Keller said, were, were wisdom and justice, good things, courage, uh, self-control, but they didn't have really talk about virtues of, of mercy and affection, and so it is, is absent from that. So uh, uh, virtuous people in that view, for the Greek Greek view, didn't have a need to forgive. Um, uh, the universe to them was fundamentally impersonal. Um, there's no concept of, of sympathy there. So then he came came along Christianity and really the persistence of the need for forgiveness in our culture. Didn't realize I had pages there, sorry. So there's the the history. Don't worry, I don't have any more slides. So we'll stay on track. Uh, Today we're we're going over what uh, forgiveness, the forgiveness of God in the Bible. So it's really a survey of the whole Bible, and I think... I thought of that, uh, me talking about a survey of the whole Bible is basically ridiculous. I, I don't, I'm not capable of doing that, nor is anyone else really. Um, but we're going to try to go through what we're going to see is the thread of forgiveness throughout Scripture, not just in the New Testament, not just in a few isolated places, but throughout. 
So I thought, you know, I, I'm not capable of doing that. I thought Keller actually did a pretty good job, really good job in the book. And so I'm basically going to follow him, uh, follow through the, uh, what, how the book goes. Uh, if I quote him a lot and uh, certainly uh, steal, borrow, whatever you want to call it, his concepts. If I forget to say that this is Keller saying this, it probably was, so just forgive me there. Uh, he, I'm, I'm quoting him a lot, uh, a lot in here. So the way that he approaches it, it he starts out with a denial of the claim uh, that forgiveness is a really important thing in Scripture. Um, the forgiveness in the book of Moses, then we're going to go from, from Moses to the Psalms, to the prophets, the Gospels, and then the basis for forgiveness. So hopefully we can get through all of that today. But as we begin, let's begin in prayer. Father, we thank you for uh, your word, Lord, the clarity of it, um, the truth of it. Father, we uh, will see so clearly today that it, it is so clear of your, your love and your care for your people, your hatred of sin, path you made uh, for us, your chosen people. Lord, uh, make our words clear today. May we understand what you have for us, and uh, may we do all uh, to your glory in Christ's name. Amen. All right, uh, today, there's not going to be, for those, I think everybody in here has been a Christian for, for some time, there's probably not going to be a lot of new things to you, but I think as, as we think about this whole path through Scripture, Hopefully, it'll, it'll make a, a, an impression on our minds that this is what life is about, what God intended as he created the world and brings us to himself. So first, we're going to begin with the denial of the claim. Um, uh, we, we need to first look at the, the wellspring that's in Scripture. Uh, it's really, truthfully, what, what uh, Keller says is the heart of the Christian message. There are a lot of threads through Scripture Certainly, forgiveness is one of those threads, very strong threads through Scripture. There are some critics out there who claim that, that the Bible really doesn't spend all that much time on forgiveness. I don't know for sure how you could get that. One way they, they approach it, and I don't, I'm sure this is not their whole argument, but that, that the Greek words used for forgiveness are not used very often by Paul. And that's, that's a pretty weak argument, but it, it may be true that that's the case, the actual Greek words. You, you can get in trouble with word studies like that. How many times does it occur, and therefore is it important or not? Another example of one of those words is the word propitiation. It doesn't occur very often in Scripture. I, I didn't count, but something like only five times or something. But uh, J.I. Packer, when, in his book, uh, Knowing God, says that if you want to reduce the heart of the gospel message down to just a few words, it is adoption through propitiation. And I think, think about those concepts in Scripture, probably adoption's not used all that much as far as the word itself. Propitiation's not either. But you put those concepts together, that's the gospel. And so I think he's right in that. So I'm just using that as an example. It's kind of scary to just count words. Um, so when Paul uses the word forgiveness, uh, he's actually able to summarize uh, in a very short order what, what God has to say. In Colossians 1, 
uh, verses 13 and 14, he says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved, and in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If you shift over to the Old Testament, think about the Hebrew. I know nothing about the languages, so don't. I'm just telling you what he says. So I didn't go check him out or anything. Blake can correct us if I miss this. These, these are pretty weird words. You talk about the Hebrew word. He says the Hebrew, a Hebrew word is KPR. Now, I think they need to buy a vowel there somewhere, but it's KPR. And uh, it means to cover sin, and it's used constantly when we're talking about the animal sacrifices. Another word, another Hebrew word is SLH, and it means to pardon or to stop blaming. Uh, it's also connected with the sacrifices. Uh, it's, it has the notion of some kind of payment or atonement with it. Another one is just, it's just two letters, but still no vowels, NS. It means to lift or bear away. It's, it's a picture of sin being removed. Uh, this is used to speak of both uh, human and divine forgiveness. So forgiveness is really throughout Scripture. It's the Old Testament, New Testament. It, it's God's astonishing forgiveness gives us the basis upon which we can forgive and exercise forgiveness, and that's why it's in this book so heavily. It's a whole chapter dedicated to what God has done. Uh, you remember, I think Blake for sure, and yeah, Tom did too. I think Tom even put up a chart of the vertical horizontal. See, we, we're thinking of the vertical forgiveness from God Give, empowers us to do horizontal forgiveness with others. Today is all about the vertical and the power that that gives us uh, to forgive. So I'll, I'll pause there. Any questions, comments, clarifications need to be made? Okay, we'll move on. The uh, forgiveness in the book of Moses. Uh, so let's begin with where everything begins with Adam and Eve. Remember Adam and Eve were told not to eat of the fruit and what was going to happen if they did? They are going to surely die, right? Did they? Okay, they eventually died a physical death, so the promise did come true. They did not die immediately. Now, they did die in one of two ways. The spiritual death occurred, boom, right there, immediately. They were separated from God to do covering, all this other stuff. Death occurred in that way, but the physical death was delayed. Why not? Why didn't he just kill them right there and end it all? And we're done with sin. David! Grace. Grace and mercy of God showed up right in the very first story um, of Scripture. Cain. Bad dude. Did he get any grace? He wasn't killed on the spot, was he? Even though you have eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and could have been killed on the spot. What, what was given to him? Mark. I think somebody said Mark. Um, yeah, given a mark to protect him. So grace was extended to Cain. Uh, Abraham has faith that was counted to him as righteousness. And Paul uses that example over in, in Romans to show the forgiveness of God given to Abraham because of his faith. The flood of Noah. Was Noah completely righteous? Was his family completely righteous? 
they deserve death like not like everyone else, but they did probably deserve death. God chose by his grace and mercy to preserve uh, the human race through Noah. God is angry over sin, but at the same time, he mourns over its effects of sin. He, there's this constant tension. There's an insist, insistence on punishment on the one hand and abounding love for people on the other. God's got to bring that together. So that, that's what we're dealing with. Quoting Keller, it is apparent tension between God's holiness and his love, between the necessity that it be punished and the desire for sinners to be delivered that becomes the basis for the forgiveness that God appoints, achieves, and offers to us. God equally honors justice and mercy. Um, the idea that, that sin grieves God has absolutely profound implications uh, for people who want to change their lives and habits. Uh, for instance, am I sorry for my sin because of its consequences? Or am I sorry for my sin because my sin grieves God? When the men's studies discussing sanctification, that's a fundamental thing. As we talk about this today, it's not just about learning to forgive other people through this power. It's, it is that. But it affects every area of our life. Sanctification, dealing with sin. These concepts uh, hit, hit home. And the idea of sin grieving God, therefore I grieve God with my sin, is really important to, to our notion of repentance. Uh, moving on, we're moving getting close to the end of Genesis now, uh, already. Uh, Joseph, the story of Joseph, there's forgiveness all over that, isn't there? When, when his brothers come, and uh, there, there's an example, I don't think he actually says, I forgive you, but everything about what Joseph does is showing forgiveness to his brothers. Uh, they, they ask him for forgiveness, and, uh, and, and he gives it without vengeance. Once we get past Genesis, we start seeing a lot more things about forgiveness. The Moses specifically praying for forgiveness for the people of Israel. All this sacrificial system that's set up is all about presenting to God and making sacrifices for forgiveness. Uh, the, the whole system of worship and these sacrifices provide uh, forgiveness there. So that's the book of Moses. Uh, Pretty fast, wasn't it? Anyway, any questions, comments about just what we brought up so far? Ideas? Okay. We're going to move on to the psalm. We'll spend some time in, in the psalms. Uh, as, as you know, reading the psalms, the, the notion of confession, remorse, are all through the psalms. And the request for forgiveness and God's granting that forgiveness and grace are just throughout the psalms that... Uh, he points to, Keller points to several psalms that uh, he calls the penitential, penitential psalms. Um, I hadn't heard that term personally before. If, you want, if you're taking notes and want to jot them down, they're the psalms of, uh, and it is worth going through these uh, to see the concept we're talking about today. Uh, psalm 6, Psalm 32, 38, 51, 102, 
130 and 143. Again, it's worth going through that. We're going to focus today on, on Psalm 130. So if you want to open your Bibles and look at, look at Psalm 130, we'll go through it. The way we'll approach this today, those of you who go to the women's Bible study or to the men's Bible study, We'll recognize a, the, a, a bit of the approach. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but it's uh, called inductive, inductive Bible study. We're going to look at some of the key things that you see in here and, and, and by that figure out what we're thinking the psalm uh, says. Then I'm going to go to Keller, and he'll tell us what it really said. No, uh, he, I think he did a good job of summarizing it as well, but we'll go to that. But we're going to start there with uh, uh, some just inductive study. Interestingly enough, uh, Susie and I have been listening to a, a biography of Keller, and what was the organization he worked for early in his career? Um, I don't want to say Campus Crusade, but it wasn't that. Anyway, some of you have listened to that book. You can probably help me out, but in that, they did inductive Bible study, and Tim Keller learned how to do inductive Bible study in from that organization, and and I don't know. Tim Keller's a pretty prolific writer and, uh, and theologian, widespread. It kind of all started with inductive Bible study and the techniques there. Very, very similar to what uh, Dennis, Roxanne, Marty lead us through in, in study. So anyway, that's what we're going to do today. When we read this, uh, Psalm 130, and look, look for things like what are the most important words that you see? Uh, what does God reveal of himself in this, in this psalm? And uh, what do we learn about man? We'll just focus on those three things, and we'll come back and go, th go through the psalm. So Psalm 130, it's a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in His word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption. And He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. All right. So what do you see, what are some important words in that psalm that, that jump out to you? Not everybody at once, just one at a time. Okay, Art says mercy. Blake says mercy, forgiveness, and hope. Yep, that's, that's definitely there. Anything else? I've... Somebody said something. Um, iniquity? Iniquity, yep. I, I would say that's an important one. What else? The Lord's the focus? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, redemption, redeem, the redemption of, of people. Um, I put waiting. Wait in there three times or three or four times anyway, waiting for the Lord. We we wait for His redemption. 
other things. I, I put here, hear my voice. Um, these are somewhat subjective when we do these uh, studies like this of what you think is the important things. But those, those words jump out at us. And to me, when, when you read the psalm, they, just, they, they really jump, jump at us uh, uh, to tell us a lot about uh, God. So what does God reveal of himself in this psalm? Yep, okay. So God has a, a judgment. That he, he is the judge, yeah, okay. Right, right. So he's a forgiving God. Yeah. Anything else? Very first line says he's Lord. He's he's the king. He's the... Yeah. Doesn't just close his eyes. He's, he he has to deal with it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, his his word gives us hope. So what does it say about man? First one to me was that God hears us. He, God hears man, and and we plead to Him for uh, forgiveness in this case, and a plea for mercy. Anything else about man? Okay. Uh huh. Okay. Okay, good. Desperate, you bet. Whether we want to admit it or not, we are, aren't we? Yeah, we are aware. Okay, well, let's look and see. We'll, we'll move on to what Keller has to say about this, this uh, psalm. He starts with the entire prayer teaches us several things, uh, and so I think there's six or seven of them here. One is, the first one he lists is the universal need for forgiveness. So all mankind, every man, every, every woman needs uh, forgiveness. It says in verse 3, who could stand? Nobody. Uh, to be spiritually acceptable before God, there's no one righteous. There's not one. Secondly, Keller says, uh, it teaches us about the problem of forgiveness. Sins create a record. Uh, thus, there's a, there's a debt, there's a liability that has to be paid because the sin, sin is there. It, it, our, our record is marked. Uh, last weekend, I, my, I was in a small school, 40-something students in my senior class. We went, I went to a, a, a reunion. And... Being one that doesn't remember that much about school, uh, but I also know when you go to one of those kind of reunions, unlike going to maybe Amarillo High's reunion, I know everybody in the room except for their spouses and stuff. It's not like there's a few that don't know me. Everybody in the room knew me from some, in many cases, since first grade. Well, the greatest fear is that I don't remember anything, and there's a lot of people in there that remember a lot. And, and my wife's roaming around the room talking to people, and I'm thinking, she's going to hear stuff I don't even remember. And my, my thought is, that goes with this, sins leave a mark, a record. And she heard some stories that were 
I can't deny them, I don't remember them, but they likely were true, and, and it left a mark. So anyway, uh, we owe someone for, for our sins, but the mark is there, and it has to be, has to be removed. <clears throat> the third thing that, that uh, Keller brings up is it teaches us about the fact of God's forgiveness. He does not say, might be forgiven. He says, with you, there is forgiveness. It's, it's a fact. This was a real mystery for the Old Testament believers. If you think about li trying to live in their shoes, I don't know if you think about that very often, but every now and then I contemplate that. There's so much they didn't know. There's a lot we didn't know, but the scriptures give us so much more insight and how all this plays together than they had. It was just a, a faith they had to go, go forward with, so it was a real mystery, but it's, it's not for us because we have... Verses like Romans 3, 24 and 25, and we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. What mercy it is for us to know that, and to know the grace of God. Fourthly, uh, Keller says, it teaches us something of the end re result of forgiveness. Pardon and grace lead to an increased fear of God. When, when we understand what he's given us, we have the fear of the Lord. Keller says the true sense of the fear of the Lord in the Old Testament implies relationship. So this term would be best defined as a, quote, joyful awe and wonder before the transcendent greatness of who God is. The fear of God means to be affected deeply by who God is and what he did. I think that's a, that's a real good definition of fear. The result of God's forgiveness is a paradoxical confidence and humility. Since it's unmerited love, we're both built up and awed into the dust. Fifth, Keller says, we learn about the ultimate goal of divine forgiveness. The goal of the psalmist is God himself. He's waiting for the Lord. He waits. Forgiveness in the fullest sense, biblically, is not simply asking for a pardon or remission. It is always after a restored relationship. The goal is never merely just therapeutic. Keller points out that there are three ways we can wait for God's forgiveness. Expectantly. You think of the watchman in the night that this psalm refers to, so we're waiting expectantly for, for God. Uh, the morning always comes. Uh, we can wait obediently. We wait for God often by simply obeying fully as, as best we can. And finally, we wait in community. Uh, it was all Israel, not just me, all Israel, hope in the Lord, and he will redeem uh, his people. Finally, Keller points out uh, we get a hint of the basis or cause of God's forgiveness. Uh, he himself will redeem Israel. Somehow, from their perspective, somehow God will provide. They had to trust that. We, we get to look back and see how all that worked out, and yes, he does. And he did, and he does provide. 
these psalms that, that I listed are just, they're really unsurpassed, according to Keller in, in the book, uh, for instruction on how to seek uh, divine forgiveness. Let's look quickly at a few others. You just can open up your Bible to Psalm 32. That's one of these psalms, Psalm 32. I want you to see, I'm just going to read a few verses in, in each of these that we cover. But just look at the passion of the, of the writer and the hope that's given. And, and of course, look at what, what forgiveness, how forgiveness is portrayed. So I'm just going to hit a few verses. Psalm 32, verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Skip down to verse 4 and 5. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. There's passionate pleas for restoration of the, the writer to God and a restored relationship. So you can read that at the rest of the psalm at your leisure. As I mentioned, they're very much worthwhile. Psalm 51, probably everybody's very familiar with, with that psalm. I'll just pick out a few verses to read. This is reminding you that this is when David's confessing horrible sin, adultery, murder, uh, deception, all, all kinds of things are wrapped up in what he had done. And this is David's uh, plea for forgiveness. Uh, we'll just look at verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, Blot out my transgressions. Skip down to verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 10 and through 12. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Finally, in verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. So you see David pleading. He's pleading with God for forgiveness. He's pleading with God for a relationship, not be broken uh, with, with God. Turn over to Psalm 143. This is the last one we'll, we'll look at. Psalm 143, verse 1. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me in your righteousness. Skip down to 4. Therefore, my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. We just, just see again the passion of David. Uh, verse 5, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you. 
like a parched land, Selah. So he's hungry, thirsty for the Lord, uh, that, that relationship with the Lord. Verse 8, let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Okay, uh, just a quote from, or a thought from Keller, actually. Keller says that it's reported that St. Saint, Saint Augustine lay dying and that he had these psalms on the wall near his bed. He then lay in bed reading and weeping and praying them, especially Psalm 51, as he died. So to Augustine, these were pretty important uh, psalms. All right, that's through the Psalms. Questions, comments about? You all find this as you, as you read, I'm sure all or most of you read the Psalms regularly. It's pretty popular to do that. Do you find that kind of thing as you read those, thinking about God's presence, God's forgiveness? Don't we find that? We really find it through, through, throughout the Psalms anyway. See some heads nodding, so I assume it's true. All right. Anything there? All right. We'll move on. Uh, forgiveness in the prophets. The historical books uh, tell a, a sad story of decline. The people have a, a long term failure. So how, how do the historical books go? Give me a quick summary. Historical books of Kings and Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. Did you say failure and repentance? Okay. Boy, that's, that's concise and accurate, I think. Failure and repentance. So they have, has anybody ever counted the number of kings? I'm sure somebody has. Anybody know? Probably I need to go in that Sunday school class back there and let them tell me. Um, I don't know how many there are, and I also don't know the percentage, but just me reading it, thinking through, not counting, there's a lot more bad kings than there are good kings. A lot more. And so it st starts out with so-and-so's king. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, led the whole nation. So, he, you know, kings from the north, kings from the south, it's a lot of bad stuff, a lot of bad stuff. So there's a lot of history going on here, and that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about in the prophets, but that's what they're dealing with is the, the sad, sad history of sin and rebellion against God that the prophets are, are uh, really, as Keller says, their prophets come like, like lawyers representing God. They explain that the consequences are going to come, and they do, don't they? Over and over again, the consequences come, they repent, oh, never again, never again will we do this, and it's not very long until they do it again. Um, say, but they explain the consequences, but the prophets also explain a future redemption. Think of those word now move over, think, you're thinking to the prophets. They, they explain future redemption. They also explain a new covenant that's going to come and it will bring greater and more blessing than anyone's ever seen. Uh, punishment, 
And there's punishment. There's a lot of punishment. Will pave the way for greater redemption as God redeems his people. The fact is that God hates sin, but he cannot forgive, cannot forget his love for his people. That's a that's a blessed concept. Hosea eleven eight says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboam? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. We know from like the books of book of Isaiah and Habakkuk that a remnant, a remnant is going to repent, right? A remnant's going to be restored. And one day, uh, there's, well, that, there's actually, he makes a covenant that one day it's all going to change. So let's look at that in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Some of you probably have this memorized. Jeremiah 31, and we'll start in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So there's a reason we know those verses. I don't have them memorized, but we know where they are. God is given a new covenant to us as it, as it came true in us. All right, so that's the prophets, looking at the prophets and a little bit of the books of history. Any comments? Questions? All right. We're going to jump over into the Gospels. We're, we're more familiar, of course, with that. Uh, so in the Gospels, is what we've become accustomed to, there's more emphasis on, on forgiveness, uh, both really from divine, divine forgiveness and human forgiveness. So if you, you think of that, you know, what we're more accustomed to reading, uh, if, if you're more accustomed to reading the New Testament, you start reading the Old Testament. I've, I've heard Darren talking about it. he's going through the Old Testament here recently, and it's just it's it's not the same. I mean, it's all all Scripture, but it's not the same. There is more emphasis in the New Testament on things like forgiveness and uh, uh, both human and divine, that, and a lot more in the Old Testament of, of of judgment and sin. And there's redemption. It's just, it's a longer deal, and there's more, there's more content there that covers. It's covering the same thing, but the New Testament, especially in my view in, in the epistles, gets more to the heart of, of uh, forgiveness. So we, we receive instruction on human forgiveness and how it can uh, bring about reconciliation and healing uh, 
you know, it certainly goes beyond the animal sacrifices that were in the Old Testament, but it explains how God actually can forgive. Uh, when, we, when we understand the fullness of the gospel, uh, it, it dramatically deepens our understanding of the costliness uh, of God's grace and mercy. Uh, Keller says that there are two main Greek words that are used to convey the idea of forgiveness. Again, uh, just reading what he says. Uh, I don't know how to say it, so Blake can just, you can throw something at me or just correct it. Charizomai? Charizomai? I don't know. C-H-A-R-I-Z-O-M-A-I. Uh, it contains the word charis or charis, or it's grace. That's, that's, that's the important thing. It contains grace. It means to uh, deal with someone in a gifting, in a gracious manner, uh, rather than a strictly calculating way. Uh, forgiveness, with this word, is not, not earned or merited. The other word is ephesus. It's remission. It means remission or to release someone from legal obligation or debt. It's the most common word used, and it, it brings the idea that there's always a cost, a cost to be paid. Forgiveness then entails that the perpetrator's punishment of the debt is being borne by somebody else. May not be able to pay. You remember the uh, parable that Tom went through? Um, Terrible, the servant with the great debt. You probably have to help me here, Tom, but I think you did, didn't you? Yeah. Uh, the, the servant was forgiven a debt that he it absolutely was impossible to pay. And then he turned around and a smaller debt owed him. He, he wouldn't forgive that, that debt. And so that's kind of how we are. Uh, but the uh, God's forgiveness, a debt, had to be paid. Uh, Matthew uh, 6, 12, the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Skipping on down, it says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. What do you think of that? Is it making our forgiveness contingent upon, forgiveness from God contingent upon us forgiving others? Silence is golden. Um, mm, yeah, we're, certainly, that's right. Yeah, that gives us the ability, uh, empowers us, if you will, to be, be able to do that. But it's not a contingency deal. I don't want to get on that. We, we're contingent. As soon as we forgive somebody, then God will forgive us. We forgive somebody else, God will forgive us. That's not what we're playing with here. <laughs> yeah. Because you know what God's done. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and, and to be sure, we're not going to get into these today, but to be sure, there's some difficult situations of forgiveness. And how do you forgive the unrepentant, as an example? 
We're going to get to that in the book as, as we plow along here in Sunday school. We're going to get to that. But just remember, my, my point here today is remember one thing. It all starts here. If we don't get understand the forgiveness of God, the vertical aspect of this, we don't really have the power with which to, uh, uh, to forgive others. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. We don't understand. I think we, we grow in our understanding of how horrific our sin is. And as we understand that, we understand the depth of forgiveness. And we also understand the cost uh, that was paid. So the, the New Testament makes clear, uh, uh, really, the two-dimensional framework. The love of God given to us through our forgiveness, our forgiveness is, is part of that. Uh, it gives us the capacity to, to forgive, to love, uh, to give gifts to others. Uh, all, all sorts of things come from uh, what God has done uh, for us. <clears throat> we'll, we'll finish up today with the, the notion of the basis for forgiveness, which is what we're talking about here. Um, and that is actually the basis for forgiveness comes down to the moment of the cross. Uh, on the cross, what does Jesus pray? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, who were these people he's looking at? His own tormentors who had whipped him and thrown insults at him. The worst of the worst, right? I mean, if we were enduring that, our eyes would look at them and say, you're the worst. You're falsely accusing and coming after me. The likelihood of me saying, I forgive them. Uh, Stephen did a similar thing, didn't he? Uh, thinking the other day, where would I have been? It's, it's easy to sit here and look back and say, those scum, what were they thinking? Idiots. Where would I have been? I'll tell you where I would have been. I would have been standing out there in the crowd saying, crucify him, probably. We're... We're not exempt. Our sin is just as horrible. And Jesus died for that. Uh, he also charges, as we saw in the sermon last week, he charges disciples to go and show the world how to have their sins forgiven. And that's what the cross is about. Think of the Lord's Supper. My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Jesus' blood poured out for us. Uh, you look back, if you think about these Old Testament believers, if they, they got to see that, they, oh, that explains everything. I see what's going on now. Uh, how does God both forgive wickedness and not leave the guilty unpunished? Uh, how can he punish sin and yet forgive? You want to turn to Colossians chapter 2. We'll read a couple of verses there. 
very familiar verses. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Hebrews chapter 10, I'll just read this. Hebrews 10, it's a familiar verse for everyone. Verse 11 and 12. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. The cross, as we know, satisfied both the justice and the love of God. Um, so that, that'll be covered further in some other sessions going down, but it's talk, just consider what the cross has done. It changes everything. It changes us. It change, gives us our ability. So we think of Christ often of his example, and that's certainly a good thing, example to follow what righteous acts of Jesus his example gives us the power to do certain things, but not like the example of the cross, dying for my sin. And that empowers not just forgiveness, but all, all areas, many areas of, of life. Uh, to sum up, uh, Keller closes the chapter with quotes from uh, C.S. Lewis, and he's really hitting on the difference between forgiveness and being excused. So from Lewis, but there is all the difference in the world between forgiving and excusing. Forgiveness says, yes, you have done this thing, but I accept your apology. I will never hold it against you, and everything between us two will be exactly what it was before. But excusing says, I see that you couldn't help it or didn't mean it. You weren't really to blame. See the difference? Keller says, real forgiveness means looking steadily at the sin, the sin that is without any excuse, and seeing it in all its horror, dirt, meanness, and malice, and nevertheless being wholly reconciled to the man who has done it. That's forgiveness. Again, Keller says it's extremely difficult, if not impossible, for human beings to forgive unaided but in the gospel, we have that aid in supernatural proportions. To close the chapter, uh, he again quotes from Lewis. But to forgive the incessant provocations of daily life, how can we do it? Only, I think, by remembering where we stand. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. So we got just a little more time. Get your hymnal out. We're gonna get James up. No, I won't. I won't call on James to come sing to us. Susie said she would. She didn't say she would. Turn to page two seventy-two. We're not gonna sing. We're gonna read. 
sometimes I find reading the hymns shifts it a little bit. Uh, singing's fantastic and really better, but sometimes reading them makes a difference. This is very well known. You can probably say this without even reading, so we'll, we'll go through. Uh, 272, The Power of the Cross. Oh, to see the dawn of the darkest day, Christ on the road to Calvary, tried by sinful men, torn and beaten and nailed to a cross of wood. This the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. Oh, to see the pain written on your face, bearing the awesome weight of sin. Every bitter thought, every evil deed, crowning your blood-stained brow. Now the daylight flees. Now the ground beneath quakes as its maker bows his head. Curtain torn in two, dead are raised to life, finished the victory cry. Oh, to see my name written in the wounds, for through your suffering I am free. Death is crushed to death, life is mine to live, won through your selfless love. This the power of the cross. Son of God, slain for us. What a love, what a cost. We stand forgiven at the cross. All right, any comments, questions? Rob. Right. Yeah. And it, most, if not or many, if not most, the perpetrator can't undo it. It's like in the parable of the... Yes. Yeah, and it... The, the perpetrator can feel sorry, but they can't take it back. He couldn't pay it. It didn't matter how sorry he felt, he couldn't pay it. So it had to be, had to be dealt with, and so forgiveness was offered there. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I was hoping you'd get there. Yeah, it's acknowledgement and acceptance of the placement of our faith in Christ's substitutionary death. Uh, it all comes down to that. That's, that's good. Anybody else? I thought you were raising your hands. Close. Close call. Okay, next week we're going to jump back to taking God at His Word. I think Chance. Chance is leading, I believe. Uh, It'll be chapter 7, Christ's Unbreakable Bible. And then the following week, Michael will be teaching back on this chapter, in chapter 5 of Forgive. So, All right, we're dismissed.